Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Brian Haydad, and Michael Borky with you on this Thursday afternoon, the 16th of July. It is my baby brother's birthday. So happy brother to Paul, who is probably not listening in Dallas, Texas today. Uh, He turns 34 today? I think that's right. 34. Yeah, I'm five and a half years older than him, so I will be 40 later this year. So he turns You will be what? Yep, yep, there it is. There it is. Michael Borky <laughs> keeps telling those stale jokes. Glad to have you along this afternoon. Ceasefire text line is wide open for you. 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. Be honest. You know your business deserves better, so get better with a Ceasefire business internet and phone bundle backed by real support. See how Ceasefire can power your success today at ceasefire.com. Slash business. What's up, guys? Anxiously awaiting this supposed bombshell that's coming out that everybody's talking about but won't give any details on when it comes to the Washington football team. Do we anticipate getting that in the next three hours? Uh, last, so it's it's actually been really irresponsible from journalists across sports media that will say. I know this big, juicy report is coming from the Washington Post, but I'm not going to tell you anything that's in it. Well, then shut up. You know, that's kind of irresponsible to speculate. I mean, I even saw a local D.C. television station share their report this morning by saying, we don't want to speculate, but here's two minutes of speculation. That's kind of irresponsible when it comes to journalism and ethics and stuff, but most people anticipated it to come out either today or tomorrow. Even Adam Schefter said that it is coming, a story from the Washington Post that is uh, going to expose a lot of things, and some guys are actually getting out ahead of it. So Dan Snyder's hired a lawyer to do a review of the culture within the organization. They've had three guys now, including the radio play-by-play announcer, uh, leave the organization, and people are tying them leaving to this story that's going to come. And apparently it's just brutal. Minority owners also uh, have all gotten together and uh, are inquiring about selling their shares of the team. Well, yeah, because and, of this. and they own up to 40% of the team. Fred Smith from FedEx is one of those um, minority owners. But we kind of all thought that was related to the whole changing... Yeah, just the pressure that was being put on by the business community to change away from a team name that so many people were uh, offended by. But we're thinking now that that is not the case? 
um, according to a report this morning, that they are moving forward with trying to or inquiring about selling their shares unless whatever the story is leads to a, a majority ownership change. Hmm. But are we basically just dealing with the fact that Dan Snyder's a terrible human being? Yeah, and don't forget, two years ago, and it kind of flew under the radar, I think because it came out during football season, and if you've got bad news, uh, release it on Friday during football season because nobody's going to care. Uh, it was alleged that Redskins cheerleaders were used to go on private dates with like um, major sponsors and ticket holders and stuff for the team. Basically pimping out their cheerleaders uh, in remote locations for one-on-one -on -one interaction with important people to the franchise. Hmm. And it kind of flew under the radar because it was during football season. But, I mean, if that was going on and we know about it, I could not imagine what the Washington Post is working on because that's pretty horrendous. I mean, just kind of sc scrolling through the mentions of Washington Redskins on Twitter, I mean, th this is the kind of stuff that people are saying. Rumor is Dan Snyder was paying the officials. <laughs> that's like it didn't the, work. <laughs> if that's the bombshell, then this this whole tease has been a joke. Because I mean, come on. If that's the bombshell, like, did he get his money back? They aren't winning. Here, can can we read the? I mean, does this put us in the irresponsible if we read what some of the allegations are? Not if you put a massive qualifier on them like you've just done. All right, this is, this is yeah. some of what Twitter's saying. Washington owner Dan Snyder abuses both alcohol and drugs. Paying off officials with some refs allegedly having made $2 million off of Dan Snyder. Also alluding to other owners doing similar things. That feels awfully far-fetched. I know one owner who obviously didn't do it. <laughs> Jeez. Um, I just I I don't even think I can read some of this stuff. Yeah, a lot of it's really bad. But it, it, you even had a couple of Redskins allegedly held cheerleaders' passports from them in a foreign country in order to force them to solicit themselves to season ticket holders. It, that's what it was a 2018 story that came out that they were asking their cheerleaders to do things. Like that. I think we probably just better wait and see what's in the uh, in the story before we go too much farther down that road, because there's some pretty inflammatory stuff there, and we'll see how it uh, how it all plays out. Um, anything good happening today? <laughs> um, golf has been good. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau hit a 420-plus yard drive. Now, in fairness, it carried 335, but that's the qualifier. He carried it 335. It's a big carry. It's uh, what he's doing is unfreaking believable off the tee. And the thing is, like, there was one shot he hit today where after he hits the tee shot, his line—I mean, you could see the way he was lined up, but also just the line he took off the tee was to carry a bunker on the left. To carry the bunker, it's 317. He took a line so confident that he was going to carry 317 that he hit it over the bunker. I mean, that was the yeah. line he took. It is something we've never seen in the sport before. The way he's hitting the golf ball is absurd.
I, I am impressed, Michael Borky, that the first thing you said about the golf that was going on was not related to Tiger Woods, because let's be honest, that's what everybody cares about. Tiger Woods back in competitive golf, first time since February because of COVID and whatnot, uh, really got off to a good start. He was two under through three holes, made a birdie on number one, great putt there, uh, got it really, really close, nearly made an eagle on number three, uh, made the putt to get it to two under, made a couple of pars, and then he bogeyed six and bogeyed eight, made the turn at even par 36. He is par number 10. And so Tiger Woods currently five shots off the lead. He's tied for 30th in his first round back competitively since February. Gary Woodland on the golf course, five under through 12. And that was after he made a uh, a really nice run on Sunday last week at Memorial, uh, wearing that, uh, I mean, you want to talk about a guy that loves America. I mean, he had it all over his shirt. Like the back of his shirt said United States of America vertically. It was, uh, it was something. Uh, Brendan Steele and Lucas Glover both at four under par. Steele in the clubhouse, Lucas on the, uh, Glover on the course. Charles Howell the third, Jimmy Walker, Tony Finau all at three under. Uh, Howell is in the clubhouse. The other two still on the golf course. Pretty good leaderboard. Uh, Tony Fee, I mentioned Tony Finau. Let's see, uh, Jordan Spieth shot a two under 70, played a, uh, a nice round today. Same thing for Patrick Cantlay and Patrick Rogers. And uh, mentioned Tiger Woods just a second ago. So golf happening uh, right outside of Columbus, Ohio, in Dublin at Muirfield Village. This is, I, I have said many times already, Jack Nicholas's tournament. And it's uh, a good field. It's an invitational field. And uh, it's got a really, really good field. No fans, obviously. Today, Gary Woodland's shirt down the middle of his back vertically says freedom. So he is on the patriotism train uh, in a big way with his apparel over the last uh, couple of weeks. Got a good lineup today on the uh, Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team later this afternoon in the 4 o'clock hour. Glenn Davis, who has been in football coaching for a really long time in the state of Mississippi, uh, both uh, at Mississippi State and most recently, currently, and for a number of years, has been the head coach at uh, at Colin. We always visit with him uh, when we are at Colin for that KDMC kickoff classic, which is clearly not happening this year, uh, late in August, as it normally does. Uh, always enjoy the conversations, but look forward to getting into Glenn Dave, uh, uh, getting into some of the topics surrounding junior college football right now with uh, with Glenn Davis, head coach at uh, at Colin. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, Ross Dellinger will join us on the Farm Bureau phone line. He has been busy over the uh, the last few days uh, covering some of these college football stories for Sports Illustrated. The reopening guidelines uh, released today by the NCAA. Sports Illustrated had a little bit of uh, advance notice on those. And uh, not shockingly, they were very accurate with uh, what they said. The reopening guidelines from the NCAA, which we will get into very much mirror those uh, that are in place from the uh, from the Power Five, and Ross has also outlined some of what was discussed in the athletics directors' meeting on Monday of this week, with some different scheduling proposals that uh, seem to be gaining a little bit of momentum. Sports Talk Mississippi, we got a bunch to get to with this afternoon with you. Just getting started on this Thursday, Cross and Borky and Haydad. We will be right back. If you want to be part of the conversation, you can do so on the ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. It was brought to my attention after the show yesterday that we did not respond to as many text messages or read as many as we should or as we normally do. I will take the blame for that. I, I realized, in fact, I thought it was a little odd 
that for the last oh hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half of the show yesterday, we didn't get any text messages. That just never happens. You you are incredibly active on the C Spire text line. For some reason, that particular screen on my computer froze, and then when I refreshed it at the show, uh, after the show ended, about 50 text messages popped up. So, my bad. We uh, we read them, and we use them, and Hey Dad is mad at me, and he, he thinks I am a terrible I'm, person I, and yeah. ridiculous for not figuring that out in real time. I represent the people. You know, I know you do. The people. Uh, I certainly am aware of that. Where's your optimism level today in terms of football? No, 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 no hold on. Let me. I don't want to paint you into an optimistic corner. Where <laughs> that's, that's are good you? Call. Yeah, on a scale of one to ten, and I'm not talking about Labor Day weekend. I'm just talking about football being played at some point this fall with a minimum of eight games. Where are you on a scale of one to ten on believing that that will happen? Uh, when after I saw that graphic that the NCAA put out today, probably like a four or five. Okay. So, so basically, a coin flip for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would tend trend towards no at this point. Okay. Borky, you ready for this one? Yep. Eight or higher. Ooh, eight game season. That's what you said, right? If they if they That's play eight games this year, I am eighty percent or higher confident that they will find a way to make that happen. So the NCAA released a graph. Hey, Dad, referenced it. Said although testing and contact tracing infrastructure have expanded considerably, the variations in approach to reopening America for business and recreation have correlated with a considerable spike in cases in recent weeks. And they got this graph that makes it look awful. Because they've got a, a line, say, th- there's kind of a, a, a dotted line midway through the graph between April and May that says the NCAA begins conversations about return to sport. So that was you know roughly, what, April 20th, maybe April 25th, something like that. And then there's another dotted line that shows... From the end of April to now, where the trajectory was, where they thought they would be, and that dotted line, where it crosses today, represents about uh, just shy of 400 new confirmed cases in the previous seven days per million American residents. In reaction, uh, in reality, we're more like at about oh, I mean, it's hard to tell exactly because they don't put it on the graph, but about seven hundred. So about three hundred cases per million people more than where they were projected to be at this point. Is that really as big of a difference as this graph makes it? Look like, well, it's per million residents, right? Yes. How many? How many million residents are in the United States? About three hundred million. Times three hundred. No, three hundred million divided by one million. Okay. Will give you three hundred times three hundred. So we're we're averaging about nine. Is that ninety thousand cases more per per seven days? 
Am I reading that right? Yeah, that's the way I read it. So in a month, almost 400,000 cases more? It's about right. I mean, yes. in something that's that is... That's a big number. It, it's omitted from that chart, and not nefariously. That's just not what they've included. But we are testing more people than when they began making these protocols. A lot more. And that does mean something. Is that everything? Of course not. As you said yesterday, you have to look at everything all at once instead of cherry-picking the data you want to make yourself feel better. But we are testing more people far more than we did then. And if we had almost a million tests a day going on two months ago, those numbers probably look a little different. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, the first response the to the NCAA is that in April we were testing 150,000 people a day. Now we're testing 700,000 a day. It's the sharp upturn that bothers me. And I looking agree. at Europe, Canada, Japan on this graph and how they have all trended downward. Basically, since they peaked, they've all started going down. And, and they have not trended back up. America has not only trended back up, but it is a sharp, sharp trend up. Hey, hey Dad, I, I don't think you're extrapolating out week by week is what we're talking about here because we're talking about where we are currently as opposed to where the projection was that we would be currently. So I think the difference in where they projected we would be mm-hmm. at the midway point of July and where we actually are at the midway mm-hmm. point of July, if I'm doing the math right, is about 90,000 different, not 400,000. Okay. I'll take your word for it. I'm, math is not for me, I promise. No, no, I understand, but I, I, I'm just saying with the way that they have drawn this graph, and and clearly it is, I mean, I, I think every single thing you read right now has an agenda. There, there is almost no agenda-driven news, adre- agenda-driven statistics or whatever that that doesn't exist i didn't say that well everything's got an agenda one way or another finding finding news or statistics that are not agenda driven is almost impossible regardless of the agenda we're talking about whether it's trying to make things look bad or trying to make things look good there is an agenda behind the numbers and the way they're being presented without a doubt this graph is being presented to show a poor scenario with where we are in comparison to where they projected we were going to be at the end of April, from from the end of April to now. There's no question that there's been a significant uptick in cases. But if the difference in where they projected that we would be as a country and where we actually are as a country is only off by about 90,000 cases... When we're talking about 300 million people, I don't, maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but I don't see that as that big of a number. Well, the other issue to remember is that it's still trending upward. So in a week, it's going to be bigger. And in another week, it's going to be bigger unless the trend starts to change. That's a good point. That's a good point because right now it's on a steep incline. It's got to, it's got to flatten. It, it is. I did not realize how steep it was. I mean, I, I knew... When you see it on this graph, it, it really brings it home that, man, it, it is, it's almost, it's not even a, a, a trend, and, it's a spike. And, and basically, since fr- from June 1st to July 15th, we've gone from 500 new cases per 1 million people in a seven-day window to 
700 new cases per million people in the United States. And that's troubling, obviously. Hmm. It looks like we were it looks like when that happened, you know, just around June 1st, we were on the right pace for what the NCAA, I guess, I don't know where the NCAA like, came up with this, where we thought they'd be. Maybe they got that number from, from some federal agency. I don't know. But it looks like that, that they were on pace for that, and then all of a sudden it just blew up. Yeah. Still can't find all those stories that uh, correlate the huge rise in cases to the protests that happen all over the United States. Look. Have I just missed those stories? Uh, they weren't written. I did see, mm-hmm. though, um, that clown nerd Darren Rovell, uh, who said that it was SEC fans <laughs> that are the reason that the spike... In fact, Every time. a lot of data actually backs up the fact that uh, a lot of the spike is due to northerners coming south for vacation. And that has contributed to a lot of the spread. So, you know, just throwing that out there. But don't you think, for right or wrong reasons, uh, this chart was released in the manner in which it was as, I don't want to say scare tactic, but kind of a kind of a scare tactic to say, look at what happened, wake up, or else we're not having football, with the way that it looks and how it was presented to us like a wake-up call? It's not like they used incorrect data, but it feels like they did that on purpose, doesn't it? Yeah. Thomas and Greenwood says, if you believe the numbers are being manipulated for political reasons, take heart that there is another stimulus package set to be voted on by the end of July. Once that vote happens and benefits are extended, numbers will drop. Excited to get that in 2024. He also sent us a link to a story that says Black Lives Matter protests may have slowed overall spread of coronavirus in Denver and other cities. New study finds. Oh, really? That's an interesting angle. No last-minute deal materialized between the Cowboys and Dak Prescott. We talked about that yesterday. He's scheduled to play on the franchise tag this year at $31.4 million. Dak spoke up. Oh, last night or this morning. Told USA Today Sports last night, I guess it was. I'm a cowboy and couldn't be happier. I look forward to working along with Coach McCarthy, the staff, and my teammates to be the best team we can be in pursuit of our goal of a Super Bowl. Stephen Jones, who's the vice president of the Cowboys, and Jerry Jones' son, discussed negotiations with Dak and his representation by phone on Wednesday before the deadline. Cowboys tendered no new written offer, nor have they since... March, according to multiple people with knowledge of the conversation. Cowboys' latest deal offered Dak Prescott a contract spanning five years with guarantees of no more than $110 million. In comparison, the Rams guaranteed quarterback Jared Goff, who was also drafted in the 2016 class, $110 million as part of a four-year extension last summer. And as we've talked about, Dak wanted, it sounded like, a four-year deal. Cowboys originally wanted to do like a seven- or eight-year deal. They got to the point where they were willing to do a $5 million deal, a five-year deal that was rumored to be worth, what, $35 million a year? 
So it would have been total value of like 175 million with according to this story 110 million of it guaranteed. Was it close enough and so he will play on a tag where he makes almost 31 and a half million dollars this year. They will again you would think revisit an extension in the offseason. I I thought what John Harris said yesterday was it was interesting but it wasn't new. It wasn't anything that we haven't talked about before. And that was the idea that if the Cowboys don't do something, it's going to end up costing them money. Maybe a lot of money. But the other part of that is they may have just decided that they're okay with that. That by waiting another year or two, they're going to have a better idea of where where the salary cap number is in terms of the new CBA. They're going to save some money in the short term. And in the event that something really goes sideways with Dak this year or next year, which is not likely, but but in the event that it does, they have not gotten themselves into a contract that is, you know, just an anchor around their neck. And if the salary cap does what they expect it's going to do, it goes up and Dak Prescott produces at a really high level this year or potentially this year and next year, then when it's time to get a deal done, they're going to have to pay him. They'll have no choice because they're not going to... If he produces at a high level for the next two years, there's no way they're going to let him go. No chance. No. It really is interesting to me. Sorry, go ahead. It really is interesting to me that be it good, bad, or indifferent, however you want to look at it, that the Dak is just so uh, set on this four-year deal that he. I mean, it doesn't seem to matter. It has not seemed to matter what the Cowboys are willing to put around the deal, guaranteed money, total money, whatever. It, it, it's it's going to be four years or bust. Yeah. If you put the money that they're talking about into a 10-year deal and compared it to what um, Patrick Mahomes just got, you'd be looking at 10 years at $350 million. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes just signed a 10-year extension that has the potential to take him to $503 million. $150 million is a lot of money. That is a big difference. And so maybe it's smart. I mean, maybe it's smart all the way around. Maybe it's maybe it's smart for Dak to put himself in a position to get a couple of more big deals, as we've talked about. And maybe it is smart for the Cowboys. I mean, people can talk about how the Cowboys have run that organization and whether or not Jerry has handled things the right way or not along the way, but they're not stupid. I mean, right? The the, the Cowboys under Jerry Jones have gone from what did he pay for the Cowboys? Two hundred million dollars, something like that. Yeah. No, no. Wait, is that right? No, it's not yeah. even that much, no. It, it was less than that. I, I don't remember what the number was. $75 million to being worth like $3 billion as a franchise. And Jerry Jones is the single most powerful owner in the NFL. He's not stupid. The organization's not stupid. You may not like the way he goes about things, the way he makes decisions, but he's not dumb. They have a plan and a strategy in the way they're handling these negotiations. 140 mil. 
He paid 140 for the team. Yeah. And what's it worth as a franchise right now? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I didn't look that up, but I would imagine it's probably closer to $2 billion than anything else. I think it's more like 3 Dallas Cowboys value. Oh, they're 4 I thought. Nope, 5 Maybe. $5 billion, according to yeah. CNN, according to Forbes, I'm sorry. Most valuable most... franchise in American professional sports at $5 billion. That was as According of 2019. This, most valuable in the world. So more than those you know, those European soccer teams that used to, be, okay. used to hold that, that number down. So the Cowboys at $5 billion, the New York Yankees at 4.6, Real Madrid at 4.2, FC Barcelona at $4 billion, the Knicks at $4 billion, Manchester United 3.8, and so on. Anyway, David asked a good question. What happens if an injury well ends his career? But I mean, if he gets hurt this year, and maybe got off to a bad start and gets hurt, it's the gamble that he's willing to take. That's yeah. that's the point of the tag, David. Is he's betting on himself. That's what Dak Prescott's doing. He's getting a nice check. I mean, thirty-one million dollars is a pretty sweet deal. But he turned down what was also a pretty sweet deal from Dallas, one that would have, I mean, paid him at close to the level of Russell Wilson. And you can love Dak and you can acknowledge that he's not on the same level as Russell Wilson. And he turned it down because he thinks he can get a shorter deal for more money. He doesn't want to lock himself up long term. I don't think they can... Go ahead. Well, just if something goes wrong, let's say they don't make the playoffs. They may go another direction. In the market, if with Mike McCarthy and that roster and the quarterback can't make the playoffs again, it's a gamble. That it has to work. He has to win right now, or else he he lost the bet. The other thing to consider is you know talk about the injuries. I mean, his arm's not going to fall off. I don't think. I mean, he could, could but you know the 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 scope of career-ending injuries for a quarterback, you know, outside of a, a, a Thiesman kind of freak accident. I mean, that could that happen? Sure, but you know, he tears an ACL. Guys come back from that every time. So sure. I, I think I think the I mean, the, the, uh, the only current example. I mean, the only example in the last couple of decades that you really look to just absolute career-ending industry injury Mm -hmm. sorry not industry career-ending injury is Mm -hmm. Alex Smith and he is attempting to come back trying to come and 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 his injury the injury was really really bad but it was the aftermath of it where he got an infection infection and yeah yeah that didn't really come from the injury so yeah whole thing's fascinating and you know, as we talked yesterday, Dak says he wants to be a Cowboy. Hey, Dad, you've pointed out many times he grew up a Cowboys fan in Louisiana. That's where he wants to be. He wants to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. And he's done a really nice job, and he's going to be paid handsomely this year. And one way or another, he's going to be paid handsomely next year. And in all likelihood, he's going to end up with a, a – a, I started to say a long-term deal. I mean, if four years is long-term, he's going to get a four- or five-year contract got a bunch of guaranteed money in it, and is going to make him one of the three or four highest-paid quarterbacks in the NFL. And if he performs during that four-year contract, he's going to get another one that, that leaves him there. And if he pulls that off, I mean, at, at that point, he would have played, what, 12 years in the NFL? Yeah, if, if, if my math is right, yeah. Which is a heck of a career. Yeah. Heck of a career. But Troy Aikman play eight years with the Cowboys? Drafted in 88 and was out of the league by, what, 
96, 97, so something like that, yeah. Yeah. And Tony Romo didn't have a super long career. No. Battled some injuries as well. We're talking about the the two you know recent names that immediately pop into mind when you think about being a Dallas Cowboys quarterback. Neat that that Romo wasn't in the league for ten years, was he? Oh three to sixteen, he was in the league for thirteen years, 13 but he years. only started uh, from oh six to fourteen. Okay, so eight years as a starter and another five years in the league as a backup or a guy that was injured. Pretty good run. He was really good at times, man. At times, he was really, really good. You're right. Sports Talk Mississippi with you, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Brian Haydad, and Michael Borky on this Thursday afternoon. We'll take a quick timeout. Continue with you after this. Reminder, a little less than half an hour now, Glenn Davis, the head football coach at Colin and Wesson, will join us. We'll talk about the decisions of the NJCAA, how that affects junior college football in the state of Mississippi, how it affects recruiting, how you build a roster. You're only going to play in the spring. And if there is a possibility that Mississippi Community Colleges, the MACC, will actually play football in the fall and uh, will quote-unquote go rogue, uh, as it pertains to the rest of the NJCAA. We'll get to all of that. Ross Dellinger will join us in the 5 o'clock hour today, talk about some of what he's been working on at Sports Illustrated over the last couple of weeks. Richard Cross, Brian Haydad, and Michael Borky with you. Ceasefire text line is open. You know that number. If you don't have it committed to memory, just uh, plug it into your phone. Plug in the Ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395, if you would like to jump in. We'll get into the budget conversation a little bit later this afternoon. But USA Today has released its uh, financial database for all schools in the country. I kind of nerded out on this, Borky, when I saw it. My guess is that Haydad did not nerd out on it quite as much as I did. Or did I didn't even look at it. I didn't look at it. Really? No. Nah. Just not interesting to you? Well, I mean, I know I know where the school that I cover is. Where are they? Uh, they're going to be probably in terms of overall budget. They're thirteenth in the SEC of the of the thirteen teams that turn in budgets. Uh, Mr. Haydad, may I tell you that you are wrong, wrong. Somebody has a lower athletic budget than than Mississippi State this year. Two somebody's oh, plus wow. Vanderbilt. Okay, uh, we assume largest budget in the SEC and second largest overall is Texas A and M at two hundred twelve million dollars. That is significantly more than the second-place SEC team, Georgia, at $174 million. Although, as I've mentioned to you on a number of occasions, I have been told that in terms of reserves and ability to get through a dark time like everybody is going through right now, there is no one that is better positioned than Georgia financially to, uh, to handle this. They've done a really good job saving money. Alabama seventh nationally, third in the SEC at 164 million. Two other SEC programs in the top ten nationally: Florida at 159 million and LSU at 158 million. Florida's knocking on the door of 160. Within the confines of the SEC, we know that Vanderbilt either is dead last or we're just going to assume they're dead last because of the way they spend money. 
or don't spend money, as it were, and the fact that they don't tell anybody what their budget is because they're private and they hide behind that. I, I don't know why they do, but they do. So of the 13 that reported, Missouri has the smallest budget in the SEC at $106 million. Their expenses last year were $108 million. And so in terms of the athletic department, they operated at a $2 million deficit, give or take. Ole Miss is at number 12 in the SEC at $108 million with $113 million in expenses and operated at a, basically a $5 million deficit. And again, I'm just kind of using round numbers. Mississippi State is almost $4 million ahead of Ole Miss in terms of budget this year. That's good enough for 30th nationally, $112 million and change. That was my donation and that made the difference, probably. That, that $4 million? You know, I just gave, gave him a small percentage of my Super Talk salary. And, you know, and, and, and how about kids. this? How about this? Mississippi State, in terms of expenses... $98.8 million. And so yeah. they operated at about a $13 million surplus in 2018-2019. Comes in handy these time of years. Uh, yes. And so if you're wondering what the difference is, you know, where the the $8 million difference, or I'm sorry, the $4 million difference comes in in those two, it's the uh, the eight million dollars that Ole Miss was down in postseason revenue from the SEC. Didn't get the cut of bowl money. Didn't get the uh, the basketball would, money because they weren't. Would able Missouri to still be in that too? Uh, should be right. I mean, they they're on probation. Were they during eighteen nineteen? I mean, I know, yeah, weren't they? Baseball team couldn't go postseason last year. No, I mean, this is football related, though. Oh, I mean, it's just fo- this is just football. Well, no, no, no. I mean, this is overall budget, but they were they were get... they were bowl banned last year, weren't they? They just didn't get they didn't have a winning record. That that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So they would not have gotten that money, and so they would have yeah. been short as well. So you got. Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and Missouri kind of grouped there about together when they are all whole in terms of what they're receiving from the conference. There's a big jump, though, between those three and Arkansas at $137.5 million in terms of their budget. You remember in his introductory press conference when Mike Leach referenced Ron Polk? And the book of his that he had read years and years ago? I do. You remember that, don't you, Hey Dad? Yeah. Today, the uh, Mississippi State football Twitter page, Hale State FB, uh, put a picture of Mike Leach and Ron Polk socially distanced holding baseball playbook between the two of them. Mike Leach has his arm fully extended out to his left, and he's holding the spine of the book, and you got Ron Polk holding the uh, the other side of the book. Ron Polk in long pants, dress shoes, maroon golf shirt. I think he's got his nice gold watch on. <laughs> Mike Leach, t-shirt with sunglasses tucked into the neck of it. 
hat popped back on his head, khaki cargo shorts and flip-flops. There's a reply in, in there that says, do you think Coach Polk has ever owned a pair of flip-flops or cargo shorts? I would bet no. If you were to interview Mike Leach tomorrow and you started it with, hey, Coach, what do you think about coronavirus? How long would it be before he stopped talking for the next question? You get at least four minutes out of him. At least. By over-under, it would be like six and a half. And people don't realize, and this is something that once I started working in media, like you think think four minutes is not that long. Talking for four minutes is a long, long time. That's a long time to talk. And I'm telling you right now, he wouldn't even break a sweat getting me to four minutes ask, answering that question. Ceasefire text line is open to you, 601-879-4395. Bull, there's a lot of it in wireless, but Ceasefire thinks you deserve a plan that's actually what it says. Here's the real deal. The best plan for one or two lines, $45 each with auto pay and paperless billing. No bull, Ceasefire.com. 601-879-4395 if you want to be a part of the uh, the con- uh, conversation or the congregation. Strider in Amen. Indianola says, we're on on Leech Beach, baby. Saw some video of them doing – so I guess team yeah. workouts started last week, but coaches and other people who take pictures and whatnot uh, were allowed to be there starting Tuesday, right, the 13th? The volunt- our, uh, mandatory workouts have, have begun, yeah. Yeah, and saw some video of – uh, the hole they dug in the ground to fill up with sand to uh, create the leech beach. That looks miserable. <laughs> I mean, there's more, like fun. all summer workouts look miserable because they're outside and it, the heat index is like 107. And so it all sucks. But that looked especially terrible. Yes, sand makes things worse. Sand is great when it's, you know, you're laying on the beach and it's nice and relaxing. There's a reason people like run on the beach. It, it, it makes you, makes it harder to run. It makes it harder to do things. We did before my sophomore season. That's why you run on the beach, right? <laughs> Me? I run. I yes, sure. Why not? I run to the the cooler of beer at the beach. Sure. Sophomore season, Borky. Uh, yeah, before our sophomore season, we decided to cut two a days in half. So the county let us do two weeks of two a days, uh, but we had the option for some reason. Uh, to cut that down to one week. And so they took us down to this little church camp in Myrtle Beach to do four-a-days. 5 a.m. practice, breakfast, practice, lunch, practice, dinner, practice for seven consecutive days. By day three, we had ruined the field. Like, all the grass on the field was off. And down there especially, everything is sand. So there was, like, an inch of grass and like soil underneath the grass. Once we tore all that up after eight practices or so, it was just sand. And in that region of the country, sand's not white like it is on the, the Gulf Coast down here. Because of the marshes and stuff, it's really black. It's dark sand inland of the actual beach. And even some of the beaches are dark. Anyway, you can imagine the black sand sitting in the Myrtle Beach August sun for hours got really hot. The next day after we ruined the field, We practice still every day. By the end of the third practice, every down lineman's hands were completely blistered, fully blistered. And our cleats were melting on the bottom of our feet. And somehow nobody got fired and we never did it again. Did you guys go home early or did you finish out the week? No, we finished out the week, but they told us to stop putting our hands in the ground and stop tackling dudes to the ground. because And we had... It was like the Junction Boys, man, I swear. We had... 
those little sand spurs that you get, the goat heads. And it's not like this was in 1970. No, this was 2000. So I was a, I graduated in 10. My senior season was nine. So this would have been 07. We did this. <laughs> and I mean, we, we had these little rooms where there was like six bunk beds in the size of what you would think a standard bedroom is. And that's where we slept. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I played linebacker mostly, but if you came down to the ground, you had to immediately start getting the sand off of you because it was so hot it was burning you. And then they ran to Gettysburg, and Coach, uh, I mean, Coach Herman Boone spoke that, to them about how important it was to come together. And We ended up stinking. We stunk, man. We had a quarterback that went to North Carolina, but we were awful uh, that season, and everybody well, jokingly like, blamed it on that, but... When you're covered in sweat head to toe, it's not like it's easy to just brush the no, sand off man, of you was, either. It's like you've got glue all over your body. Oh, it was terrible. I, I, I now in high, it, you know, when you're 15, I didn't think like, man, this is so bad. Somebody should get fired. I just thought my coach was a jerk. But in hindsight, with how many? I mean, I'm talking. Everybody's hands were completely wrapped. Like we just grabbed a hot like a stove or something. Yeah. Because of how I hot the remember, sand was. I don't remember the version of two-a-days that we had being that bad. I mean, like day one or day two when we were running at the end of the morning session, I I vividly remember throwing up, but that only happened one time. And it's like once you got past that, you're all good. But if I remember correctly, the way we did it, and this would have been going into my senior year, it was practice at like 7.30, in the morning, 7.30 or 8. And that was more of a conditioning practice. So it wasn't, you know, full-on, you know, ones versus ones, twos versus twos. You know, in, it, it was more installation and then a pretty heavy dose of conditioning and probably went for an hour and a half or so. And then we came back at 2.30 or 3 or 4 or whatever time it was in the afternoon for the big practice of the day. And then that was the, the full-on everything practice. Maybe I've just kind of blocked that from my mind, but it seems like we only did that for a week also. The the whole two solid weeks of two-a-days where they just absolutely kill you, I mean, th- those days are gone forever. I know forever is a long time. I just don't see any scenario where we're ever returning to that. No. And no. It, people say, well, we're getting soft now, but let's be honest. You weren't actually when, – when it comes to like teaching football and getting prepared for a season – we did so my freshman, junior, and senior year. We did two weeks of two a days, and after like day two, it was just getting through. Everybody, nobody did anything right. It, it was just it was so miserable that they were counterproductive to actually preparing for a season. They didn't do anything. They, they accomplished nothing other than maybe made us tougher. But when it comes to like getting the playbook down, going into my senior year, we had a new defensive system. We learned nothing for a week and a half before regular one-a-day practice happened. It, it was a waste of time, really. Probably more just conditioning and getting your body ready for the season. Yeah, well, I don't know if my yeah, body Glenn could Davis ever be Davis is going to join us in, in just a few minutes, and he's been around football for a long time. I guarantee you he has uh, memories of what practices used to be like compared to, uh, to what they are now. We might go down that road with him if we've got uh, time coming up in just a little bit. Hey, Dad, it's funny. One of the things that, that stands out to me in, in my memory is you, know, you go out for a 7.30 practice, and unless it's just one of those days where it's just, you know, it was, you know, the, the overnight low temperature was like 81 
then there was dew on the ground. And so you, you start the day, and for what, knowing that you're about to get hot and sweaty and nasty, it's like it shouldn't matter. But there's, you know, a couple of times a week they mowed the, the, the field overnight or, or after practice in the evening. And so you had fresh grass clippings that had not been blown off the field and a heavy dew. And it was like, all right, boys, time to stretch. Get on your rear end. Lie, lie down. And it's like, I know we're going to get dirty and nasty and sweaty, but I don't want to lie down in the dew with the fresh grass clippings right out of the gate before we've done anything. There's no way around it, though. And it was like you kind of had to ease into that, whereas in reality, a, you should have just jumped just down Just a there. recipe just, for heat rash is all that is. Yeah. That's, just yeah. jump down in there and roll around in it and deal with it and then go on. Oof. I don't miss those days. I miss the games. I, was, I don't miss those days. It's funny you say that because I was just about to say, what would you give to go back and do it one more time? I'd do it. Go go I'd through one more August practice leading up to the start of one last season. Yeah. Hmm. Of course, neither you nor I broke our neck playing football like no. our friend Michael Borky did, so... I don't know if he would be as interested in going back and doing it one more time or not. I still uh, have bad days from that. Mm. Glenn Davis, head football coach at Colin, will join us when we come back on the uh, excuse me the Farm Bureau phone line. That's when we continue. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, and Brian Haydad. Time for us to go to the Farm Bureau phone line for the first time today. Check out the website, favrates.com, and go with the home team at Mississippi Farm Bureau. Glenn Davis joins us. Coach, I mentioned earlier today that uh, we're closing in on the time where we would usually get to visit in person, that uh, KDMC kickoff classic that happens I don't know, midway through August, not not going to be the case this year. There's a whole lot of different that's going on in and around football right now. Yes, no doubt, Richard. We got uh, it's kind of a new norm right now. You don't know what uh, you know what what to expect right now. It's just one of those uh, crazy things that uh, never thought that uh, I would ever be involved in coaching football or anything, and and. Uh, you know, and you know, young men. We, when we were young men, I'm sure you experienced this. You always thought you were invincible, and uh, kind of think. I always, always thought football was kind of that way, but you know, found out for sure that it's that it's not. It, it, it's funny you mentioned that. We were talking just a few minutes ago about what two a days used to be like and how that's changed so dramatically, and uh, the fact that we'll we'll never go back uh, to what it used to be like. When, when you know you went for two solid weeks and maybe it was 14 straight days and uh, you know practicing in the heat of the day in the afternoon and you know getting after it in the morning as well do you have a two a day memory that that kind of stands out among all, all of the memories yeah I, I really do I had one when I my first college coaching job I was in North Alabama with coach Bobby Wallace and we actually went three a days one year we went uh, an hour before breakfast and then we went and ate and then we had our morning practice, and then we had our afternoon practice. And you talking about making for a long day? I thought I never would get through those three days just as a coach. It was probably rougher on us as it, than it was players. Were, were you able to get anything done, or, or did you hit the wall after a, a handful of days where it felt like you were just spinning your tires? Well, I, I think we, you know, there was 
you know, Coach always had a plan for what we were going to get done, and I think we pretty much got stuff done. But it was, you know, uh, you know, players think they have it have it rough. They always got to go take a nap and that kind of stuff. And while they were napping, we were getting ready for the next work, next practice, or watching hmm. practice film of it. And so, for coaches, it's a lot worse than on coaches than it is on the players. I think. I'm not sure players want to hear that, but but I think what no, you're saying they, probably makes some sense. <laughs> they definitely didn't want to hear it. They always argued about it. I said, man, I don't have a clue. All right. Try and help me understand what's going on right now. So the NJCAA, um, the, their Board of Governors earlier this week uh, votes to push the uh, the football season to the spring. Um Interestingly enough, the, the representative from the MACC abstained from that vote. Let's maybe start right there. What did that abstaining from the vote mean for community college football in Mississippi? Well, I mean, Richard, really, you know, none of the coaches really know kind of what's, you know, what's going on really just because from the standpoint of, you know, we, we've all been planning all summer, you know, have our kids to, in June or, or at least in July, and you know we we had calendars and all kind of plans made out, and we've had to change all those. You know, uh, we're on our third plan right now. Uh, you know, we you know we thought we were going to be coming in on the thirtieth or thirty first of this month, and and uh, you know we just you know right now it's just hard to say. I think the presidents are trying to make the best decision that we can. Uh, in our situations, I think it's a little different than than a lot of the Kansas schools or the California schools or the Texas schools, you know, roster wise. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's where we're different. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know all of the discussions that they've had with the national office. And you know, I just know they're trying to make the best decision they can. And, um, you know, and I, I just know how different our situation is because of our roster sizes. And everybody in this league does a great job getting their kids graduated and, and you know, we're, you know, our rosters are going to look drastically different in in December. I don't think going rogue is the way to describe it. But is there a scenario where you think we could still have junior college football in Mississippi in the fall, despite the ruling from the national organization? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that there's you know there's never say never that it's not going to happen. I, you know, I think that you know it's got a you know the safety for the players and, and the coaches and, you know, everybody involved, I think that's their, their number one thing that they're looking at. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, things are going to get better and going to turn, you know, better with our numbers and what we've been seeing in the state. And I think that's the biggest thing that scares them right now. And, you know, I think they're watching to see what happens with the, you know, all the, you know, four-year schools that are in our region and see what happens with them. And, you know, I think they're just not rushing to make a decision right now. And I, you know, I think that's smart on their on their part. And, I, I was um, curious. I was going to ask you next if, if you thought that the decision that the SEC made um, at, at the end of July, I think that's kind of what Greg Sankey has said uh, they're targeting, if that would have an effect on, on you guys one way or the other. I think I think it might. You know, I don't like to say I don't know. You know, I know they're talking to a lot of people, and uh, just like we've done as coaches, trying to find out, you know, how to go about protecting our kids. And and you know, we've talked to the major colleges, you know, look at their plans and stuff. And and uh, I mean, there's just, there's just a lot of scenarios. I think that they're that they have to look at. And you know, and at the end of the day, you know, you know, all of us have to be able to check as many boxes as we can to make sure that that our kids are safe. And, and um, you know we you know we want we all want to play you know whether it's fall or spring, 
And, uh, you know, we just kind of got to take, I think, one one time of the year at a time right now. And, uh, you know, maybe that's what they're doing. And, uh, um, you know, it's just a, you know, it, it, it's just kind of, you know, it, it's kind of a real tough deal when we know that, you know, a lot of our kids are, you know, have a chance to graduate in December. They're, they're working their tails off right now online, you know, this, this, the two terms in summer school and, you know, and, you know, the, you know, the doubt of how the classroom activities are going to be in the fall, you know, there's a bunch of concerns from, you know, I, I hear them from my wife's a teacher, so I hear what, you know, what people are saying to them, uh, you know, about going to the classroom and not going to the classroom. And, you know, it's a, uh, you know, everybody's got a tough job right now. There's a lot of tough decisions yeah. that got to be made. Glenn Davis is the head football coach at uh, at Colin. He has been on with us a number of times in the past. Kind enough to spend a few minutes with us on the Farm Bureau phone line this afternoon. So, so let's fast forward. Let, let's say that this spring football season thing actually happens, and you mentioned the roster turnover in December. Could you field a football team in in January or February if you had to? I, I think it would be really close. Uh, you know, the the thing that we, you know, I think all of us might could field. You know, a team, but you know, injury. You know, you're going to probably be one injury away. And uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I told people, and that's kind of already, part of football. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of part of it. And uh, you know, I've I've uh, been here before, and we've had you know three offensive linemen uh, you know left over for spring football. So we kind of had a big half line drill during spring football. And then I've been here, we've had six or seven offensive linemen, and we might get one or two hurt. So. You know, it, you know, you're always an injury away uh, in the spring when, with our turnover. And you know, if we're in a situation where you know you're like Kansas, where you got 85 players and then you redshirt another 15, you know, those folks have, you know, they may have 30 out of staters on their roster, so so they're able to get their numbers up that high. And uh, uh, so it kind of it, it's kind of tough from that standpoint. And uh, you know, and I know they're thinking about all those things because all of us are in the same boat. It's not going to be just one junior college. It's going to be all of us battling those yeah. those problems. Or, you know, I won't say the problems, but those scenarios that they're all going to go through. Would there be any way to increase your roster size at the turn of the semester? I mean, there's really not, is there? Not really. There's not that many players that are going to be available. You know, we're always looking for guys that are wanting to transfer that, you know, somebody might not be happy that, that you know, that, May have redshirted or feel like they want to make a change so they can play their way into a better, op- you know, better situation. You know, you know, we're all there's fourteen of us and we're all looking for those guys. So you know, there's, yeah. there's not many, uh, many, many situations. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it, you know, the high schools have done a much better job of graduating December guys. So we, you know, we've all been able to pick up a few of those in the past, but there's just there's a there's just limited numbers in that. Any idea if if Division One, if four year schools were to get pushed back to the spring, your guys that finish up in December and they go and and they enroll there, is there a scenario where they would be eligible in the spring, or is that just no way to know? You know, I don't know. I think there would have to be some special rulings on that, and I would I would be surprised because you know I think right now they let they let them practice with them. Uh, you know, when they say they've got a January bowl, they'll let them practice with them, but they won't let them play at the bowl game. So, right. Um, you know, I don't know that they would, but you never know. I mean, NCA may, you know, grandfather them right in if they were, you know, since they're eligible from, for graduation from here. You know, they might. Um, you know, I, 
because but I, you, know, you never know because the Division One schools, you know, their 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 eighty five is built on ending this fall. And that's uh, right. So, so there's no, it, 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 there's a bunch of decisions. A lot of a lot of folks are going to have to make here in the next uh, um, six months. You know, whatever decision they they go with, it's going to be going to be really interesting. And uh, Coach. Coach, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Still got more questions than we've got answers. Look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thank you. You too, Richard. I appreciate you. That's Glenn Davis, head football coach at Colin. Some people call me Maurice. Because I speak of the pompadous. Good conversation with Glenn Davis just a few minutes ago, head football coach at uh, Colin. And. Yeah, you, know, you heard a lot of uncertainty, I thought, in in his voice. Nah, but Glenn's been around the game long enough. Enough, he's just going to get ready, and whenever they say play ball, he's going to be ready to play ball. He'll have his team ready to go, and they'll go with it. Doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, and doesn't get you know caught up a lot in the kind of in the the minutia. But I think uncertainty in that he's just not sure what's going to happen. And, guys, he wasn't I'm, – I'm trying to read between the lines but not put words in his mouth. Sounds to me like the MACC is holding on to the idea of playing football, regardless of what the National Association said. Did, did, did you kind of pick up on that? Felt yes. that way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're going to – if they have to play a year, I I wonder about that long term. You know, I can't imagine if imagine if the NCAA had real power and they could shut down college football, and the SEC just said no, we're going to play. You feel like there would be okay. Well, then you're not a member of the NCAA anymore. You don't play for national titles. Kind of repercussions coming. Wonder what what the the reaction is going to be. That's a good well, question because isn't. So I grew up in a state where junior college football was just not a prevalent thing. I mean, anybody that was good enough to get D1 offers but didn't get the ones that they liked went to Georgia military because it just didn't really – there was no good, no good JUCO football in South Carolina. But from a national level, what I've learned since I've been here is the MACJC and, and the schools here largely are the gold standard of junior college mm-hmm. football. So – do you think they have more leverage to do this on their own and then jump right back in on the, under the national umbrella because the national umbrella knows that the class of junior college football is these teams here? Yeah, Borgia, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I don't know enough about the governance structure at the national level and how much weight they carry, if that was just a guideline that they were putting out. I, I mean, you, you don't have a football playoff per se, at the national level, you've got independent state leagues that have agreed to play in those bowl games, the postseason games. Um, I mean, it's Mississippi, it's Kansas, it's California, some in Arizona. I mean, there's a there's a big junior college system in the state of Texas, but I don't think from a football standpoint, it's all that big a deal. It's a big deal in baseball. And maybe some other sports, but you don't really hear about junior colleges in Texas being, you know, part of kind of the national landscape on a year in, year out basis. Um, 
there's a significant community college system in Florida. And you, you, you think about baseball players that have come from the state of Florida and, and that community college system. Um, but again, you don't think about it from a football standpoint. So from a football standpoint, it's California, Kansas, Mississippi, and then kind of everybody else. So I don't know. I, I, I really don't know the answer to that, but I would not think that the MACC would bite off its nose despite its face. Right. And 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 so maybe there's some leeway. Maybe that you you can make a decision at the state level that because there's not a lot of you know, it's not like in baseball or in basketball at the junior college level where you've got this national tournament where you know it's broken up into regions and you go to the regionals and then you go to national and whatnot. Yes, you have a national championship game, but it's only the top two ranked teams in the poll at the end of the year that get to go play in it. It's not a playoff structure, per se. You have state championships in all these states. And I think I made reference to the fact that you know the the structure feels more like the way high school athletics is structured than the way Division One athletics is structured under the NCAA. You, you've got state bodies that oversee, and then you have the National High School Federation, of which those state associations are members, but they're not conducting national championships at the high school level. They're conducting state championships. So I don't know. He said it would be hard. He said he thought he could put together a team for a spring season, but there would be basically no wiggle room for injury. Anything else that Glenn Davis said stand out to you guys? I laughed at the idea that the two days were harder than for the coaches. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't know that I buy it. Yeah, well, and he said his players didn't either, but uh, they were constantly arguing about that. So if you go before breakfast and then have breakfast and probably cram in a quick staff meeting and then go into that long morning practice and then you got to go back and try and watch film and get the plan ready for the afternoon and then you have the afternoon practice and you try and... Yeah, I'm still not buying it. We got coaches in shorts and t-shirts with a whistle, and uh, and their guys. They're full, full pads, full go. The salt tablet days. Thankfully, I did not play in that era. Yeah. Uh, the Memorial, Gary Woodland and Ryan Palmer currently tied for the lead, both at five under par on the course. Brendan Steele and Tony Finau are both at four under. Rory McIlroy made a birdie on 15, got it to 2-under. Tiger Woods also birdied 15. He got it to 1-under for his round. Currently 26 players under par or better. Golf course is playing hard and fast today. It looks it looks like a different golf course than last week for uh, for what that's worth. Yeah, wind's been blowing today pretty uh, strongly. Uh, as well, and, and and folks were talking about the fact that the greens were not rolling fast at Memorial last week. Mm-hmm. Jack wasn't going to allow that to happen. He he was saving it. Yeah, we can host the tournament. We're happy to do that, but we're not uh, we're not going to use our Sunday pin positions for 
the the workday charity event, and we're not going to have them rolling at eleven and a half or twelve or thirteen or whatever they're rolling today. Not going to happen. Do you see where Jack uh, accident? Well, not accidentally. He texted Justin Thomas congratulations after JT hit that fifty footer in uh, um, what was it? The first playoff hole. Where yeah. where Thomas hit that fifty footer and that would and have won him the match. Turn around and drop the twenty five footer on him for birdie as well. Yeah, so Jack saw that right as he was about to get on his private jet because that's the life he lives. But saw that, shut the broadcast down and said, it texted congratulations to Justin Thomas. Got on the plane and flew somewhere. And so Justin Thomas, after his round, after he blew it, well, he didn't blow it, but after he gets beat in the playoffs. No, he blew it. He he gave up three shots in the last three holes. Yeah, but man, when you sink a 50-footer and the next guy's got a 25-footer, you think you win. It, it just it didn't work out that way. But he, he gets to the, his locker after the tournament and gets a congratulations text from Jack Nicholas after he lost. Oops. Uh, thanks, Mr. Nicholas, but uh, I finished second. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops! I'm sure they've had time to uh, had time to talk since uh, since then. You want to be part of the show? You can do so on the ceasefire text line 601-879-4395. Jeff says, Richard, did you catch any of the NASCAR All Star race last night? I'm trying to interrupt the golf talk. Did you watch? Unf- I put it on for a second. I, I turned it on at nine o'clock. Or at 8.58, and it was over. <laughs> I didn't realize how short of a race it was last night. Yeah, all-star races are shorter. The underglow was kind of cool, but the problem is the, the tracks are so illuminated that you didn't, like the underglow didn't show as much as it could have just because the tracks are lit up. But last night was a big deal. And, and I forget who pointed it out earlier today. It was Matt Moscona, uh, does radio in Baton Rouge, if you're not familiar, pointed out today that you didn't see... Uh, on ESPN or anywhere, the headline of NASCAR has 20,000-plus fans in attendance for All-Star Game. That's the biggest crowd anywhere in the United States since March 12th when Rudy Gobert shut everything down. And college football, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA's in a bubble, so they're not playing in home arenas, but those leagues watched really closely last night and for what's coming in the the few days following. And... That was a really big deal for college football and the NFL, especially because they had a crowd last night in a big stadium, much bigger than what we have in college football. But that was a really big deal. And if it went well and there was no major spike that came from it, that bodes well for having fans in stadiums this fall. 30,000 folks in a 150,000-seat stadium. Saw the news out of Philadelphia this week until February, no crowds for sporting events. Vance on the coast says, 1985, Pascagoula High School, two-a-days. Morning practice would end with us going to the beach and doing agility drills in the stand. A sand. Started at 7, finished at 10.30. Afternoon went from 4 until dark. We got one water break. We should have all died of heat stroke. By the way, played with NFL veteran Richard Harvey. Great dude. Also, I don't remember a coach throwing up at practice. So the story at the Washington Post has come out. It's behind a paywall. You'll have to wait until somebody copies and pastes the link of it to uh, be able to read it in its entirety unless you have a subscription to the Washington Post. Here's one excerpt. 
Okay, please understand, the story is serious. There are allegations and on-the-record, um, I should say on-the-record allegations of multiple instances of sexual abuse and misconduct within the organization, and it paints a terrible picture of the way the organization has been run under Dan Snyder. Backed but, up by text messages, too, screenshots included. Mm, it was bad. Is it going to cost him the team? Is he going to be forced to sell the team? Kind of feels like it, even though the article does point out that he was not directly implicated in anything. Of the 15 women that have come forward, none of them said that he directly. However, uh, it doesn't appear that there was a chance he did not know that this kind of culture existed. So, There is one funny line, funny-ish. I mean, I'm sure that people would look at this and they would be like, Oh, it's abusive and belittling and whatnot, but come on. Snyder routinely belittled top executives, according to three former members of his executive staff, perhaps most intensely Green, the former sales executive, whom Snyder mocked for having been a male cheerleader in college. After one executive staff meeting, according to one former employee, Green said Snyder had ordered him to do cartwheels for their entertainment. Nobody else found that amusing? No, I'm sorry, I'm just taken aback by a text message we got. Uh, a guy that uh, is upset that you haven't read enough text messages said he had a car to give away to Palmer Home, but not anymore. I'm just real, I'm very taken aback by that message. Yeah. Probably not true. Uh, yeah, but uh, I respond to as many messages as I can on the text line, like typing back to you, but sometimes things just happen and we don't read them all. But if that's going to stop you from donating a car, which, like Hey Dad said, probably doesn't exist, but if it did, if that's what stops you from donating a car, really take a hard look in the mirror at yourself. By the way, we've read more than three texts. Yeah. Richard, if you ever ask me to do a cartwheel after a meeting, I'm just going to, like, flying body press you. It's just for just just so you give you that heads up ahead of time. But you weren't, a, oh, you weren't hey a dad. You want to do a cartwheel? I'll be like, yeah, I'm gonna Randy Savage Macho Man elbow smash you off the uh, off the top of a table. Yeah. So just don't ever do it. I guess would be be my my lesson there. David says Dan Snyder is a little weasel. Maybe Johnny's mad because we haven't read more than three of his texts. He was. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan, and he is on a run in talking about the reason that the Cowboys have not advanced in the playoffs is because he has pictures and can prove the fact that Dak and Tony Roma, or uh, I'm sorry, that uh, Dak and Zeke Elliott were out drinking the night before the Nash, the some playoff game. Yeah, he says the Monday night before the NFC Championship game, to which I pointed out. The Cowboys have never, Dak has never played in the NFC Championship game. So I don't know what you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, but he's got pictures to prove it, man. Well, that's and, great. I mean, if, and, if Dak went out way, on Monday and affected a game on Sunday, well, the whole league's got problems at that point. Uh, if guys drinking the night before games. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Never mind. Uh, you want to be part of the conversation? You can. How? On the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. Maybe. You guys never read my text, but when you do, I'll do cartwheels to celebrate. So we want video. I just read it. 
He, he says he's pulling over now <laughs> to uh, do cartwheels. Hey, please don't text and drive. Uh, Borky points out that uh, he'll read every text that you send tomorrow because I'll be off and he can do whatever he wants to do. That'll be the show. No prep at all. We will turn the mics on at 3.06, and uh, I'll just read your messages for three hours. Why not? Better bring it. <laughs> you better make it good. I mean, one time reading all of the messages led us to debating whether or not uh, a Black Panther existed. So, I, you know. It's true. Send us da- Especially during coronavirus times, send us down a rabbit hole that we have not been down. I'm cool with that. Mm, that'll be fine. You guys go for it. Let me know how it worked out. <laughs> we will, sir. Hey, man, it's going to be fun. You guys are going to be great. I am thrilled that the two of you are in place, and I feel fully confident that the show will still be here when I return on Thursday next week for the Palmer Home Radiothon. Yeah, don't, I mean, don't even think about us. Just, just have fun. We'll be fine. I'll make sure to not read compromising ones on the air, and your show will still exist when you get back. Yeah, I'm not going to think about you. Don't worry. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I was I was really wondering. It's all good. You can just send me the rundown every day just so I can keep an eye on what you guys are talking about. Well, not because I'm checking in, but because I'm curious. Well, yeah, and you need to know, too, just so we don't get repetitive. Yeah, I'll send it to you, but tomorrow's is going to be read text all day, period. Like, okay. the notes were almost 5,000 words today. Read notes only three words tomorrow. In the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to visit with Ross Dellinger. That's coming up about 20 minutes from right now. The college football fix is on the other side of this timeout. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and you on this Thursday afternoon at Sports Talk Mississippi. Yeah! Super Talk Mississippi. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, and Brian Haydad. C Spire text line. Best way for you to get in touch with us. 601-879-4395. Want double the data for the same dang price? Now, all prepaid by C Spire plans get double the high-speed data through the end of the year, pay for 6 gigs, get 12, just $40. Pay for 12 gigs, get 24, just $55. You get the idea. Now, you can go get the deal. Plus, C Spire is giving you your choice of free phone when you bring your number from another carrier. No contract, no credit check, and no bull. Just better wireless. Learn more at cspire.com slash prepaid. Time right now for the College Football Fix. Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough. How do you become America's best-selling brand? Oh, it's easy, right? Innovative technology, intelligent all-wheel drive, and built Ford Tough trucks. That'll get the job done. Check out your local Ford store today and get low APR financing, big cash back, 
and great lease offers on the full line of Ford cars, trucks, and SUVs. That is how you become America's best-selling brand. All right, there is a lot to unpack in the universal COVID protocols for Power 5 teams. And the Power 5 protocols really mirror what the NCAA has put out as well. Borky, I know you've read this in detail. Is there anything that stands out to you? It's a six-page document that outlines the in-season testing requirements, response protocols for positive tests, contact tracing plans, and considerations for game cancellations. The thing that stands out to me is uh, they it very much feels like, well, there's two things. One, that uh, they're not going to let a positive test derail a team or a season or potentially even a game. Since they're testing everybody every week, it will be expensive, but it'll be worth it. Uh, If there's one positive test or two or three or four even, they know that's all they have. So it's not like they get one test and have to test the whole team and shut it down. They only will shut down the players that test positive because it's universal. They're able to do that, and it's at least uh, a 10-day quarantine. But I think the most important thing that I got from this is the uniformity and further highlights that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 potentially – got ahead of their skis, and I even said on Twitter earlier today that if we do have a football season, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 might feel really stupid because the ACC and SEC and Big 12 are probably going to strike up a deal and preserve big-time non-conference games because they can all guarantee that protocols are being followed with this plan. Is there any reason that the Big Ten might not walk it back? I'd be shocked if, if things get better and, and we start pushing forward and the SEC and the ACC, for example, say, hey, look, we're playing Florida-Florida State, Georgia-Georgia Tech, that's going to happen too. Mississippi State, NC State, that's going to happen too. Where the Big Ten says, hey, we had Ohio State going to Oregon. We need to make that happen again and bring back on that or, or come back on that decision, yeah. Yeah. That's something we'll ask Ross a little bit later. Is there any uh, undoing what the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have done so far? College teams will be required to test football players within 72 hours of game. So that means, depending on what time you kick off on Saturday, the tests have got to occur on Thursday. And you've got to be able to turn those test results around. And it's a standard PCR test. Game officials in football and basketball should also be tested weekly because of their close contact with athletes according to the document. However, coaches are not required to be tested, although staff members must wear a mask on the sideline if they are not tested in the same way athletes are tested. You know what that means? They're going to be tested. They're going to be tested. (laughs) Because they don't want to wear masks on the sidelines. Right. They'll just submit to the same testing protocol and go forward with it. Um. High-risk sports athletes need to be tested 72 hours of uh, should be tested within 72 hours of the first game of a week's set of games. High-risk sports include football, basketball, rowing, soccer, wrestling, volleyball, field hockey, ice hockey, lacrosse, rugby, squash, and water polo. Meanwhile, lower-risk sports may test less frequently. So that would be what tennis and golf and baseball yeah. and softball. Yeah. Sports where you get people spread out more. 
I think they determined that baseball was a medium risk, so that their protocols will be different than the golf team, for example. But it's not the same as football, obviously, as you just said. You test positive, you must isolate for at least 10 days from the onset of symptoms or a positive test and until you've gone three days without symptoms, which the document defines as resolution of fever without the use of fever-reducing medications and improvement of respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, etc. Those found to have had high-risk contact with people who have tested positive will quarantine for 14 days. 14-day quarantine is mandatory. So, long story short there, if one offensive lineman is test test positive, the whole unit is sitting out for two weeks. This is why they're going to have to redo this schedule. They're going to have to put some 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 artificial bye weeks in here, or off weeks, to, to allow for stuff like this. Because all it's going to take is one guy in a position group getting this getting testing positive and everybody's going to have to sit. Well, and and hey dad, here here's the issue. If you have a player test positive on a Thursday that is an offensive lineman, you yeah. you can't play on Saturday, can you? No. Nah. Now, Maybe it depends on what high-risk contact is. Is being in the same room high-risk? Is doing Oklahoma drills high-risk? Or is just I, I would kissing think, high yeah. risk? I would think getting you know, the offensive linemen, they practice together, they hit each other all practice long. That's got to be considered high-risk. I don't know if it would be or not. That's a good question because, I mean, once the season begins, they don't hit in practice anymore. So, By the way, here you go. Here's the answer. Here's your answer. High-risk contact is defined as those who are within six feet of an infected person for at least 15 minutes while one or both parties is not wearing a mask. That includes anyone participating in face-to-face or contact drills against each other. So, yeah, one lineman gets it, the whole unit is down. You know what you're going to see because of that line right there? Practice masks. That's going to be difficult, though. It'll be tough, but... Yeah, well, they, they wear those in the winter. They're those really thin. I wonder if that qualifies. The, the things that should. they wear around their neck and they pull up over their face when they get too cold. Uh, should. I mean, if I saw somebody in Kroger wearing one of those, I wouldn't. I would say, okay, a person's wearing a mask. There are details of several conditions that would result in a school discontinuing competition and or complete seasons. Here they are, six of them. Uh, five of them, I'm sorry. One. Lack of ability to isolate new positive cases or quarantine high-risk contact cases on campus. Two, the inability to perform weekly testing. Three, campus-wide or local community test rates that are considered unsafe by local public health officials. Four, the inability to perform adequate contact tracing. Or five, local public health officials state that there is an inability for the hospital infrastructure to accommodate a surge in COVID-related hospitalizations. And Ross writes in this story at Sports Illustrated that numbers three and five, the campus-wide or local community test rates uh, being considered unsafe or the hospital infrastructure issue with a surge are the biggest concern for athletic administrators. Hmm. 
it's kind of what Greg Sankey's mentioned uh, the last couple of days. It's he he's not exactly worried about uh, it happening like with his teams because you can't prevent it. Somebody's going to get it, and you've got to figure that out. The, they're more concerned about test turnover and hospital availability for other people. And if that hasn't changed, then we're not getting football. Borky, you you didn't like the idea of the mouth guard face mask? Well, they've innovated them some a little bit. They look better than the initial concept that came out. And Oakley's got a a, a prototype that they're sending to the NFL for use during training camp preseason games they look breathable as, as opposed to the first concepts anyway i still yeah, don't they, think the nfl players are going to, going to agree to it well college players may not be given a choice yeah especially those true. linemen that are doing those drills if that would qualify as a mask then that may be the answer to your question ross dellinger joins us from sports illustrated when we continue sports talk mississippi Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm on this Thursday afternoon, 16th of July. Time to go to the Farm Bureau phone line, check out favorites.com, and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated on your radio right now. Who says not having games doesn't give you plenty of work to do? That's right. I know. I'm more busy than ever, man. It's, uh, it's been nonstop. Um, all right, Ross, so a couple of really big stories uh, from you in the last couple of days. The guidelines for uh, returning to play and being able to continue to play and then also some of the uh, the insight from the athletics director's meeting on Monday in the SEC. But let, let's start on the SEC side of things. Um, you, you reported that you know through some conversations with people that were in the meeting, even though they've had a bunch of different scenarios that they've played out, it looks like they've kind of narrowed it down to, what, two, three, maybe four options that, that really have got some traction. What, what's most likely in your mind at this point? Yeah, yeah they, they've, they had at one point, I think, as many as 20 contingency plans. And as we get closer and closer to the fall, um, I think some of those fall by the wayside, and you start narrowing down to you know ten to eight to six, maybe. I don't know exactly how many there are right now, but certainly the ones that are probably the most likely, or at least you could say the most preferred. Uh, there's three of them that have kind of stuck out a little bit, and that's the an eight game, a nine game, and a ten game season. Um, an eight game season would be conference only games; it'd be all eight conference games. You probably start. Know, later than Labor Day. In fact, I think with all of these models, you probably start uh, later than Labor Day. It'd be surprising if we had football on Labor Day weekend at this point. But um, the nine-game model would um, would have eight conference games and then one marquee Power Five non-conference game, which you would you know you would keep it on on the schedule. Every every team has one of those, and they keep it on their schedule, uh, except of course for Texas and in. Alabama, which lost their marquee non, uh, non-conference game to the Pac-12, and then there's a the yeah. ten-game schedule, which is eight conference games in one marquee Power Five non-conference, and then you keep another non-conference game on your schedule. Uh, most of them, obviously, would would probably keep you know a group of five or an FCS um, on your schedule. So that's kind of the three uh, the three that probably I think are coming you know rising to the top, but 
certainly they still got, and they're still holding on hope for a 12-game schedule, um, even to the point, I don't even think I wrote this in the story, but late, you know, even a late September date, uh, you could still somehow squeeze in 12 if they really wanted to try to do that. Um, All of that seems doubtful, obviously, um, at this point, but uh, there are a lot of scenarios. I think those are just three that are, you know, maybe maybe more realistic. Trying to to marry two different things that we've kicked around um, and and kind of bouncing between the two big stories that that you've written this week. So the the concept of, of eight games... And I know they would like to play 10. I mean, they'd love to play 12. But, I mean, that, that to your point, just a second ago seems unlikely. But reading through these guidelines where if a player tests positive, they've got to go into isolation for 10 days. If anybody has close contact with them, uh, they've got to go into quarantine for 14 days. Do you think there could be any momentum behind the idea of playing eight games but playing every other week so that every other week you've got a built-in open date that could potentially allow you to get guys through a quarantine time and then get back the following week? Well, that's a good question. And I think you've seen um, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten make their decisions of conference-only schedules for that reason specifically, you know. Um, it you need flexibility built into a schedule. You need open weeks late in the season if you have early season cancellations, postponements. Um, so that you know, I I haven't seen that. I guess I haven't heard of that discussed specifically. I'm sure it, it's one of the options, um, but just in general, having a lower amount of games. You know, uh, kind of common sense tells you you'll have more weeks open to move games if you need to. Um, you know, if a team does have an outbreak of some sort, so and that's that's what the Big Ten and Pac-12 do. I mean, they they made the decision I think for two main reasons. One, it gives you the flexibility, like we're talking about. In two, you have a across the board uniform testing protocol. Um, you know, and which we're seeing nationally in the news we broke today about that, but. Um, you get into you get into some issues when you when you get out of conference play when it comes to testing. You just you're going to get into little issues, travel stuff, all of that stuff. So it makes things a little easier. Um, it, it does uh, when it when it comes to just doing conference only. So, but it's a good point, um, and you're going to see that happen this year. You're going to be outbreaks, and you're going to have to find a space in your schedule um, to move games. Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated joining us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Um, the the Big Ten kind of stepped out, and uh, apparently maybe Kevin Warren approaches things a little bit differently and kind of, I don't know, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, just, just some thoughts that I've, or some things that I've heard about him, about him doing things a little bit differently than maybe is traditional in college athletic circles. Pac-12 followed suit, as you were saying just a second ago, do you anticipate the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 remaining in lockstep in terms of an announcement coming at the end of July? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't – I, ha- I ha- hazard to say that, and I'll tell you why. Um, as we were reporting that story yesterday in the afternoon, um, we had gotten enough 
you know, athletic directors and administrators and put together the story. And I called one last person <laughs> and asked this person, um, so is this basically true? Is Big 12 and ACC, SEC all working together? And he kind of laughed and said, you know, wouldn't quite go that far. Um, so I- I'm not sure how close they're working together. I think they know that if one makes a move uh, without the others, they'll adversely impact everyone, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think they know they do need to work in a way in lockstep uh, because, you know, as far as the SEC is concerned, they have 13 Power 5 non-conference games left, and they are all with the ACC and the Big 12. I think there's five or, yeah, five with the Big 12, four with the Big 12, and like seven or eight with the ACC, and including four big ACC rivalry games. Um, right. So they know they need <clears throat> to preserve those games. In order to do it, they have to work in concert in some way. I just, I'm not sure how we'll close together they're they're working uh but certainly you know every virtually every day if not every week or so the the power five commissioners are talking what kevin warren did was uh took a lot of them by surprise um certainly did uh i i uh i think there was a lot of surprise on how not not only how quick the decision was was made um but how it was made um without whole lot of discussion uh, among other conference commissioners. Those three guys would kind of be the elder statesmen, uh, talking about Bob Bowlesby and John Swafford and and Greg Sankey. They've been at their jobs a little bit longer, and this may be a little inside baseball for some, but there's not necessarily a ton of love loss between the SEC and the ACC, and, and some of that has to do with how the ACC network stuff went down. Does that factor into any of this working together or not working together? Ooh, I, I don't know on that one. I, and I didn't, honestly, I, I, I had never heard that before. Um, but I guess it does kind of make sense talking about the, when the ACC network came about and all that. And, you know, I always wondered why is the SEC network hit, hit, um, uh, based in, in Charlotte and all that. So I could see that <laughs> those issues having eroded. But I, I didn't, I didn't really, um, I didn't really know that. Uh, I, I mean, maybe I, I do know this: the two conferences want to keep those four big robbery games. I mean, you got to, or you got to try. You know, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Florida, Florida State, uh, Kentucky, Louisville, and uh, South Carolina, Clemson. I mean, those are essential, uh, along with the other nine um, uh, in the couple in Mississippi. You know, Mississippi State has, I think, NC State, and uh, Ole Miss has Baylor. I mean, they want to keep those marquee games. Um, so I think they're going to try their best. Those are huge money-making games. You can imagine, Richard, um, you know, and, and I had an assistant coach tell me this, uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 uh, did what they did. No no non-conference games, so they don't have any of these big cross-conference matchups to show on TV. So you could kind of feel the void there, you know, in LSU, Texas, the Tennessee, Oklahoma. You can imagine what those games could draw on TV, and that would help in uh, in certainly negotiating and trying to get as much money in these financial hard financial times out of TV if you could keep those games. Ten seconds on a scale of one to ten. What's the likelihood that we play at least eight football games? As we stand right now, three. Oof. There's just not a lot of optimism out there, is there? 
There's not. There's not. Cases have to go down around the country, man. It's not about the death rate. It's not about how this impacts young people. It's about the cases skyrocketing around the country and local health departments being inundated. You're the best, Ross. Really appreciate your time. You're doing fantastic work, and we certainly are enjoying reading it. We'll talk to you soon. Hi, Richard. See you. Good stuff, as always, with Ross Dellinger. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm. If you want to be a part of the conversation, you can always text the show, 601-879-4395. What did uh, you think? What stood out? He's less confident than me. Maybe that's because yeah. he's closer to the uh, closer to the story and has done all. He's done all the work and all the research, and you know he's talking to the right people. You just hope that these, with the exception of Georgia, and it's not a statewide one here, although it may be coming. It's at least in hotspot areas here, but you're seeing a lot of statewide mask mandates in a lot of places, and I know people don't like that, but it's happening. You're seeing stores, Walmart, Sam's Club, Target, so on and so on, not letting people inside without them. We've kind of reinvigorated the social distancing aspect of things, and I don't want businesses to get shut down, and they're not right now, but maybe this will be enough to where things will get back into the right direction. So cases and all that need to go down, but... We are doing things differently as a whole now than we were two weeks ago, even. So the trend is going in the wrong direction, but we've adjusted our behavior to that trend, at least nationally and state by state have adjusted to that trend. So maybe here in another few weeks, it'll go back in the correct direction and everybody's confidence level will come back up. If we didn't adjust anything, I'd be far more concerned than I am because of what I just mentioned. We've seen changes that should help mitigate the spread and get back on a good trend. I mean, that's what I said, I think, uh, earlier this week, or maybe it was last week, where, where you know, when, when this first started happening and we were, we were all being pretty vigilant about social distancing and, and only going out when it was necessary and trying to wear a mask, we saw, and it's, that graph shows it, that it was going down very nice and steadily. But we got away from that. And, you know, and I'm as guilty as anybody. I stopped wearing a mask for a while there, but... Now, we, if I, again, I, I say it, I think we have enough time that if we, we all hunker down again to steal from the Georgia fans, that we, we could get that trend going back in the right direction and get things, the things we want to happen this fall to happen. Curtis and Tupelo asks on the C Spire text line, if the offensive lineman gets it, wouldn't that put the defensive line at risk? Also, what if you limit drills to 10-minute intervals for players since 15 minutes is the magic number in those protocols? Yeah, they'll work around it, man. They're, they are not – maybe I'm crazy. I, I just – you cannot convince me that Alabama football would shut down because one backup offensive lineman tested positive. Yeah, you can't convince me of that. They will work their way around these, these rules somehow to make it to where if one lineman tests positive – they all have to quarantine for two weeks. It, they're going to find a way around it. Um, I had a buddy that texted me the story that we talked about earlier this week from uh, ESPN. I think we talked about it. Maybe I just read it myself. And they're, all of these face shield companies are creating 
a, a hybrid version of the eye shield for football helmets that'll go lower. And the bottom line is, you know, they've, they've got to be breathable, but at the same time, they've got a mask. And so they're doing like offset slits or slots in the mouth guard portion of these masks. I think you'll probably see that and probably we'll have teams try to use that as a, a, a workaround on the whole wearing a mask thing. They're going to be as creative as they can possibly be. Yeah, they're, they're going to... No stone will be unturned in, in the uh, the effort to, uh, to have football. We talked about this some yesterday. We didn't have a... Uh, it was more toward the end of the show, so we didn't have a ton of time to get into it. But the different scheduling models that, that they're playing with, you know, an eight-game conference schedule, 12 games is what they'd like to do. We know that's not likely. You heard Ross say a second ago that... Um, even pushing the season later into September, perhaps they could compress the schedule to still try and get 12 games. That just seems like pie in the sky at this point to me. But backing it to 10 games or 9 games or 8 games seems like that might give you the flexibility. And it's the reason I asked the question about what if you just played every other week so that you had, and, and Borky raised this point earlier in the week, maybe it was on Tuesday, I don't remember if it was Tuesday or yesterday, of the whole... If, if you build in the open dates throughout the, the season, instead of just having the flexibility to go back and make up games you missed at the end, could, could you not largely eliminate the need to do that? If you played a game and then you took a week off, and then you played a game and then you took a week off, and you knew that there was going to be you know, you knew that there was recovery time built in each week. Yeah, you built in a quarantine period within your season. So even if you do have a handful of positives after a game, like let's say a team wins a game and they have a bunch of players that can't help themselves and they go out and party that night and they get tested and they have 12 positives. You have their quarantine period built into your schedule, so it doesn't even affect a single game. It's a long season, but maybe yeah, you do that, that every other game, like where you play two games and then take two weeks off and play two more and take or have a bye week in between two games, something like that. But built-in quarantine periods could really help actually get it done. You know, if you were to go two, two, two games and then a week off, two games and a week off, and then you left two weeks at the end to potentially make up games if you had, you know, a mass outbreak on a particular team. I don't know. This is obviously complicated, but I do kind of go back to the point of, and it, it you know, it's, I think what Ross pointed out at the end, and what Greg Sankey has been pointing out is really important. It's not that they're concerned about college athletes getting it and recovering from it. It's the potential outbreaks and the local healthcare systems being overwhelmed. And I don't know. I mean that that that's why it kind of goes back to what you were saying just a second ago, Borky, in that ultimately, or maybe hey, Dad, it was you that was saying that we've just got to see an overall downtick in the number of positive cases. 
That's what it's going to take. It's that simple. If and this look, if we're can... talking about mid-September, Borky, it's two months out. Plenty we're of talking time. About, if we're talking about Labor Day weekend, we're talking about six weeks from Saturday. They're not going to start on time. No, no, that just doesn't feel like that's a possibility anymore. Which is okay, though. That's okay. As long as they start. Craig on the C Spire text line says, we're beating a dead horse. <laughs> Craig... Man, what? Talk about sports. Don't talk about sports. I mean, what, what do you want to You want to break down like the race for the SEC West title or the SEC East title? You you say move on. Move on to what? What else is there right now besides figuring out whether or not we're going to get healthy enough for a college football season? Move on to what? KBO standings? Got big one between the NC Dinos and the Samsung Lions this week. Can Doosan make a run down the stretch to get themselves into the top two? What'd you think about those glowing undercarriages in NASCAR last night? More of our listening audience watched Doc McStuffins yesterday than Korean baseball. I haven't thought about Doc McStuffins in a long, long time. I would put my car on that. Maybe we can put Doc McStuffins on the case. She always gets her animals ready to go. If Doc McStuffins had run things instead of Dr. Fauci, wouldn't have these problems. <laughs> I mean, you can have a stuffed bear dead on arrival, and Doc McStuffins has got that bear up and going in a matter of minutes. She's good at her craft. Maybe we can go back to the little golden books as well and put Nurse Nancy on the case. I mean, there is absolutely an element of it's impossible. I'm going to stop. Sorry. Todd says even with built-in bye weeks, the guys in quarantine wouldn't be able to practice and therefore be out of shape. Possibly. So what I've seen, and college football is not the NBA from even a financial standpoint, but like NBA players in their few-day quarantine, they've been given Peloton bikes and stuff like that. I know it's not it's the same. A, that's but an easy fix. It's an easy fix. Whole team needs to be quarantined. Oh, while we're all quarantined together, let's practice. <laughs> Derek in the Delta. I bet Doc McStuffins can drive a stick shift. Ooh. I don't know if that little uh, Hot Wheels thing she drives around has that or not. They never forget, man. Ah, well. Never forget. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.